You're listening to Tech Recruit, a podcast that educates talent acquisition and recruitment professionals on innovation to attract talent across all industries. We're glad you're here. Hey, listeners, I really appreciate you tuning in to my podcast. Please remember, if you're listening on iTunes, to give us a good five-star rating. And if you're listening in on other platforms, throw in some great comments below. We really appreciate all the support. Now on to the podcast. Welcome to the Tech Recruit Podcast. My name is Stacey Broadwell. I'll be your host today. And today we have a very amazing guest. I'm so very excited to introduce you to Lou Adler. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Stacey. Delighted to be here. And you're always amazing. And I'm happy to be on your amazing show. Oh, that's so kind of you, Lou. Lou, That's what you told me to say. It wasn't kind. You wrote it down. I had to say word for word what you just said there. Thank you. Did you get my Venmo payment when you said that, by the way? Yes, I did. It came in instantly. I saw it on my watch. Um, you have been with Tech Recruit since we launched last year. I feel like you are our pseudo like angel or mascot or... I, I, I don't know what, but I think I once said to you, you are what George Foreman did for the grill. You did for my conference, Tech Recruit Conference. So thank you. Yes, and you know, he burned just about every steak he used in that grill. He had, but that's okay. So well, hopefully it turns out at least comparable to that. Uh, no, you are, when we do our event, we do a survey afterwards and you are the highest rated speaker and you are what everybody wants, the person everybody wants to meet and take pictures with. I see it afterwards. People are taking pictures with you. They're posting that they met Lou Adler. It's, it's awesome. Um, you, you have so much knowledge to impart. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show today. I have some questions that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, but first, tell me a little bit about the Lou Adler Group. That's what you're the CEO of. Tell me what you guys do. Well, I what I thought I did up until yesterday was we help companies around the world train people. As I look at that, I discover they can do that on their own without me being there, which is kind of a disappointment, and that's certainly a terrible business model. Because I've written a couple of books, and I talked to this great guy yesterday in a huge company, and he said, "Lou, I read your, I watched your." Uh, lynda.com course. I bought your book. I gave a book to everybody uh, in my on my recruiting team, and we every week we practiced it. I said, why don't you call me? We didn't need to call you. You're pain in the neck to deal with. So we just read your book and accomplished it. So the business model is uh, kind of strange. But the practical speaking, I've been a recruiter for many, many years, as you know. I've decided as part of our business, our recruiting process, I trained companies to do it our way. And as a recruiter, I said, no, you're only going to do it my way I'm not going to do your, we know our way works. We'll give you a year guarantee. And that worked. And then companies decided to say, hey, you know, why don't we uh, just bring you in to train our recruiters and hiring managers? And that's what the business is. And we've kind of do it live, online, uh, and we have a learning platform and call the hiring machine that does that. So that's kind of the business model. There is a really great history of how you got started in recruiting. And I think it's, it's really interesting. You have your MBA. You um, have an engineering degree, and uh, you, when you started in recruitment, you were really able to help hiring managers because you could see the process and you went from your engineering background. And, and I, there's been a lot of discussion, and I ask this question a lot. Do you think it's important 
for recruiters to understand the business model when they step into these situations so they can really help the, uh, the hiring manager in finding those candidates? So let me answer the first question, which is the reason I became a recruiter was because I, my boss pissed me off every month. Uh, he was a group president. I was running a little manufacturing company in Southern California, had about 300 people, was on a pretty good track. This guy was an idiot. Well, he thought I was an idiot. I thought he was an idiot. So I quit just about every other month. And after the sixth time, I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to become a recruiter. Uh, but I, having a manufacturing background, I realized it was a business process for hiring. And in manufacturing, the big goal is reduce the scrap, figure out real time when you have a scrap problem, stop the machines, and fix the problem before you make more bad parts. In recruiting, however, they don't do that. Recruiters don't know the job actually, so they send candidates into the hiring manager. They wait a couple of days or a week or a month, and they never really get good feedback. So in that period of time, they send more candidates in that are also scrapped, and they can't wonder what's going on. So it's pretty frustrating. So our process was, no, we know the job. My first search assignment was a, a, manufacturer, a plant manager. So I just went to walk through the plant with the president and said, we'll fix this problem, this problem, and that problem, and we found that person in two to three weeks. But as we send candidates in, Frequently, hiring managers never tell you what the problem is. So you just keep on sending it. So that's why, how do you eliminate the scrap of wasting time sending candidates who aren't appropriate into the hiring manager? So this is where I contend that the recruiter, which is your other question, recruiters do need to know the job. I mean, it's just like any company selling a product would never send someone in to sell their product without knowing the product. Though I don't know anything about the product, but here's what it says. And you'll like it, so why don't you just go in because you 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 can you want the salary and you like the title and you like the location, so you've got to be perfect for the job. Well, you, that sounds so, so stupid. So our whole process is no. Recruiters need to know the job to represent it, and if they're going after good candidates, they have to present the job as a good career move. So you have two decision makers. One is the candidate. The candidate has to know the job, uh, and has to see the job as a career move. And a hiring manager wants to see the hire the candidate because he or she believes he can do the work. So that's the essence of it. How do you get two buyers uh, and you be the recruiter being the middleman? How do you bring them together in a logical manner where you raise the talent bar? Candidate likes a job a year after the person's hired. Hiring manager says, yes, this is a great person. Bring me more people like that. That's what we do because we bridge that gap, which is not insignificant. It took me about five or 10 years to figure that out, but it doesn't always work. Even though it sounds kind of cool, it's hard work. It's Recruiting is the hardest way to make easy money. So, I, and I, I think this is- That was actually very funny and you didn't even smile. So I'll let, let the audience listen to this and then they can, oh, that was pretty cool. And then I'll now go back, give a two second delay there. Because I'm thinking in my head, this profound moments where you developed a system called performance-based hiring. And, and that's kind of what you're alluding to here, this moment where there's this scrap and this waste of time, and how do we get these two buyers to come together? And so you developed this program, you wrote a book about it, several, and tell me about performance-based hiring, because that's, that's the process you developed. The idea is a recruiter, and I didn't do this altruistically. I'm a recruiter. I was on a pretty good corporate track record. I was really only going to become a recruiter to get another job. And I got a couple of offers the first year. So, but I said, you know, actually, I think I can do better being a recruiter, but I don't like doing search assignments over again. 
if I present three or four candidates to the hiring manager who are good candidates, I don't like them being excluded. Why should I, if I know these are good people, why should I have to do this thing over again? So I said, you know, if I really do it right, I only need to get three or four candidates to make one hire. But, to, but that means I had to train myself into finding the right people, get the hiring manager to agree that these were the right people, and ensure that I didn't do it over again. So that was really the genesis of how it started. Uh, so I started sitting in on interviews with hiring managers. So having been in industry 10 years, a lot of the people I work with, or a lot of the people I placed initially were people I knew. So if I knew you, Stacey, and worked with you two to three years, and then some hiring manager meets you for a marketing job and blows the interview, I said, well, I know you're wrong, because I know Stacey is resilient, she's gritty, she can do this kind of high-level marketing. Uh, so I said, do I either keep on sending more candidates or I change how hiring managers make the decision? So that was the genesis. It took me zero minutes to figure out how to define the job. I never used a job description my whole life. I just go in and walk in the plant and say, okay, what do you want fixed? Or I look at the engineering person, okay, what are they going to build? What are they going to design? Even now I look at the software, okay, well, how, what are they going to build the code? How are they going to upgrade the code? What are they going to build? Talk to Mark, what are they going to launch? What are they going to build? What are they going to sell? Uh, from an accounting standpoint, because I placed a lot of accountants, I just said, walk me through what you want done. You want an international consolidations package? Fine. So getting the, defining the job was instant. I just never used the job description. I tell, tell me what you want this person to do to be successful. And I will find a person can do that. By doing that, it turned out the person never had the mix of skills with one of the job description. So that was real. So if you're box checking skills, you're missing the whole people. You're missing diverse candidates. You're meeting top performers. I mean, the best people can do more work in less years. So when manager, well, I'm a real strong person, I want more years. No, you want less years. So that became, how do I train hiring managers to both think about work as an output, not an input, not a list of skills, but the work they need to do. Now I have to train them to interview candidates. So I just sat in on literally hundreds of interviews with my clients, hundreds, sat there in the room or listened on the phone. Now I'm more, I sat in the, I sat in the interview and I said, oh, interesting. And I could see that the best managers always did the same thing when they interviewed candidates. They clearly knew the job and they asked candidates, hey, tell me about what you've done. We got to launch a new product line in two years. Walk me through how you do that. And we got to design this new factory to produce this new medical device. Walk me through how you're going to do that or where you want it. Started doing the same thing. So, oh, that actually works. So now I train managers on how to define the job and how to conduct the interview. So therefore, I only need to send three to four candidates in to make one hire. But that, but then the first one is a freebie. Say, Stacey, you wanted to meet Bill. I think he's a good person. So I benchmark the first candidate. But if the second or third candidate weren't hits, why don't I keep on presenting more candidates? There's something wrong. That's just basic manufacturing. You don't make scrap uh, and hopefully a good part comes out. No, you figure out why the machine's producing scrap and you fix it. So that's the concept. Want to give a big shout out to our sponsor, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Send your jobs to 100 plus job boards with one submission. As your qualified candidates roll in, ZipRecruiter makes it easy to screen and rate them, allowing you to make the best hires. You can try it for free today by going to ZipRecruiter.com and tell them Stacy sent you. Just recently, I've been seeing job descriptions that have the expectations of what you're going to be doing in the first month, the in three months, in a year. And this is what you've been talking about all along. 
And I know that when I was working for a Fortune 500 company, um, when I first started out, that's what we were taught. We would look at the job description. And oftentimes, I even think it's hard for the hiring manager to um, tell you what is going on in that position, because maybe the recruiter doesn't know the questions to ask, or they're afraid to ask them because they're green. But um, the process that you you teach, I think that's a good barometer to say you are on the right track. Either you're doing the right thing or this is how you can improve it or this is what you could be doing different. And anyway, I really enjoyed your course. I really enjoyed your, your book. And I want to talk a little bit about one of the things that I felt really stood out to me was something I didn't learn when I was being, when I was trained again, from a Fortune 500 videos, like, you know, materials, people would come and give seminars. They didn't talk about candidate control. And it's something you discuss in your video series on, uh, on module one. It's your first engagement on the phone, on the phone interview, when you're very first speaking with a candidate. I think it's uh, closing the candidate yeah. on the first call. And okay. it talks about the questions that you would ask to get past the monetary. So you're not talking uh, about monetary, you're, you're closing them and you're identifying what those non-monetary motivators are. Again, we have a buyer who's a hiring manager and a candidate. Typically the hiring manager doesn't know what he or she's looking for. They just know someone with 10 years experience in this. So this is where we change the definition of what success looks like. Tell me what the job's about and what a successful person doing this job is. So that became five or six performance objectives defining the task, launch a new product, uh, build a team of accountants to build a, to put an SAP consolidations package together. It's the real work. Now you talk, so we had to redefine the job with the hiring manager. Now you talk to a candidate. Most candidates, now obviously an active candidate doesn't care what you ask them. They just want to get the interview. But my focus is, and my firm made 1,500 placements and I decided I didn't like to talk to candidates anymore. Uh, so we became a training company. But when you think about the decision a candidate typically makes, particularly a passive candidate, it's tell me about the, what they get on the day they start, which is what's the money, what's the title, what's the company, and where's the location. Well, none of that defines success. That sets up the stage for failure because, okay, I'll engage in a conversation if all this stuff makes sense. So the first, so I realized that no, candidate, and this is the applicant control, and I heard it from the person I work with, because I had used these recruiters back in the late 70s when I was running this manufacturing company, and this guy, one guy was without question the best recruiter in the world. He probably made more money, than, and it was just when headhunters, I'll call it retained search firms, really started growing. This guy was a contingency recruiter, retained recruiter. He was probably equivalent to making $3 million a year today. It was just a phenomenal guy. Uh, he lived in this beautiful house, and he was the guy that convinced me to become a recruiter. But he said on the first day I started, over 40 years ago, he said the key to recruiting is applicant control, which meant don't let candidates say no to you if they don't know what the job is. So therefore, that comes in. So candidate, you call, hey, Stacy, you open to talk about a job? Yeah, but what's the money? So I, my opening statement, and every recruiter has to learn this, is don't answer the question. It's meaningless. So when a candidate says to me, what's the money? I said, it doesn't matter what the money is. Let's see if it's a career move first. And they said, what's a career move? I said, well, it's a career move. I've got to give you at least a 30% non-monetary increase. That consists of job stretch, meaning a bigger job. Why would you want it to find a bigger job unless 
uh, it was a job with more impact. That could be one of the part of the 30 percent or it could be a more sat mix of more satisfying work. And collectively, all of that has to put you on a faster growth path. We can't get 30 percent collectively. It's a waste of time. Let's first have a conversation to see if it's even in the game. If not, we can at least not work until something comes together. So that was and I can't say that I knew it intuitively. It, I learned it. I lost a lot of good candidates. But when I had a training company with recruiters, we wouldn't let them get on the phone until they could master applicant control. It's critical. And it's harder today because candidates are getting bombarded uh, left, right from 500 different resources. So you got to be a differentiator. You got to get people to think long term, not short term. Active candidates don't think they just want to get an interview. They're thinking tomorrow. Passive candidates are thinking, well, I might be open to talk if it's a better job with better money. Well, they will be open to talk if it's a better career move. But getting to think about it as a better crew is a challenge. So, you so you're actually translating the decision process for a hiring manager, not skills, but performance. And for a candidate, not what you get on day one, but what you can be doing or what you can become if you're successful. That's the essence of performance-based hiring. It is not e it's easy to describe. It is hard to implement day to day. And I'm doing it right now. I got a meeting in about an hour with the executive vice president of a huge company. We're changing and re-engineering the whole sales process. He doesn't want to do it. I did it uh, last night with two people in Romania who are trying to hire software developers. They can't think beyond uh, what that box says on the job description. So it's hard whether you're dealing with the line, first level line manager or chairman of a company. But once they see it, they get it. It's still hard. But you got to deal with the candidates every day who are thinking, what do I get? What's the what's the job description? How much money do I get paid? And what's the title? I think it's also it can be difficult for those re, those contingency recruiters who are who have an internal recruiter in between them who don't want to get them in front of the hiring manager and they just give them the job description and it just has the skill sets listed and they won't let them have the conversation. They also don't know much about it. It's difficult to get the information you need and it kind of just like makes this like uh rolling mass of the why the industry is the way it is. You've just stated a problem is that our volume is a high touch process. We don't need a lot of candidates. Why do I need more than five or eight candidates to make a hire, which means I need 10 to 15 or 20 prospects in a high contingency, high volume process. You're going through thousands of people and what the focus is on transaction and filling a job. And then their success is, will the candidate take the job at this salary? My success is a year from now, is that person satisfied? And with the hiring manager, want to hire more people like that? Totally different decision. You want to hire for uh, the, the day the person starts, you want to hire for success on the job. Our focus is we want to hire for success on the job. That is a hard to do, but that's the way you stop uh, turnover. That's the way you increase job performance. And it's the way you increase job satisfaction. It's the way you raise the talent bar at a company thinking strategically, not in solution-based selling, not transactionally, and what do they get on the start date? Totally different models. And yet you can make a lot of money on a transactional model. To me, it's the long-term impact of it is inappropriate for the candidate and for the company, but it's, that's what most people still do. Are there situations where you've been in where you have had that internal recruiter who wouldn't allow for you to speak with the hiring manager? And how did you overcome that? I don't, I don't take search assignments that way. Never happened with me. Uh, 
because I'm dealing with a higher, I mean, now here's a situation with my client in Romania, major corporation, it's division in Romania, does all their software development. Uh, the general manager of the Romanian operation specifically said to me, if I go through HR to get this done, it will take me a year and it will not be what I want. I read your book, I want to do it. I tend to always, if I can, talk to the hiring managers as part of the process. If I can't, I personally won't do the search assignment. And I tell hiring managers, do not let a recruiter talk to your candidates unless you know who the recruiter is and that candidate knows and that recruiter knows the job. You're wasting your time. That recruiter is your sales rep presenting your life and your job. And if you aren't talking to the person, talking to candidates directly, you're making a huge mistake. Because you're not seeing the best candidates. They get those, they're not recruiting the best. They're excluding people who they couldn't recruit. So Really an interesting challenge, but I, I, I would be in the same position. I mean, if I was Lou Adler, <laughs> I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be working with an internal recruiter. I would be working with the hiring manager and being um, a consultant, a liaison to help them understand what their hiring challenges are. Think about the candidate. You're a recruiter, you call up a candidate, and you tell the candidate, well, I don't really know the job and I've never met the hiring manager. You don't have a lot of credibility. So if that's the case you're in, you're just box checking skills, you're just a go-between. That job that I just defined will be automated out. I'm seeing AI, AI can solve that problem. They will not need a, a, a go-between to do it. So uh, I'm sorry, Stacey, I had to throw that point in, but it's a, a very valuable point for those who are doing that kind of job. It is, I, I know, I think that's a really good point because it's a good, it's when you get to a certain point in your recruitment practice that you have a substantial amount of, of experience and that you can be more of a consultant to a hiring manager, then that's who you should be dealing with. And so to screen out certain companies who aren't going to be adhere to that process, um, then you don't want to work with, they're probably not, they're probably not serious about their hiring or they're just taking in a whole bunch of resumes and throwing it in their database like, and you're just a data Cinderella. Yes, 100% agree. Totally, it's a, a job, maybe you do it for six months, but if you're any good, you won't do it more than that. You just know that there's more to it than that. It's that scrap, the wasted, the wasted yeah. time that you, you discussed. Um, so a couple things. I wanted to ask, so one, after one of our conversations, I, I went to um, LinkedIn and Facebook and I posted this on online and I probably got the most hits on it. And the question was, do hiring managers know how to interview? The internet went nuts. Everyone's like, no, they don't. And, you know, and it was, and it was one of our conversations that we had. And one of the reasons why you also train hiring managers, tell me about that. Well, that was really the thing as I said early, uh, or I said, as part of the process of reducing scrap, and it took five or 10 years for me to become a good interviewer. And I had one client in Southern California that just was remarkable. So I just hadn't, they just invited me in. We probably placed about 10 or 15 people's medical device company. It was just a remarkable company. I met the president, knew all the people. And I sat in a lot of interviews and I said, ah, these are how, this is how interviewing is really done. They just weren't traditional at all. Uh, and even the VP of HR, who's a remarkable person, uh, 
he said, my job is a strategic asset. If I'm successful, this company will grow. Uh, and he said, and, I, and you're, we was an outside recruit. I, we were an outside recruiting. We placed with just about everybody in the company. And it was remarkable. So I learned a lot. But then when I went to other companies, I realized that they didn't know how to interview properly. So then it goes back to, even if I got them to think about the job correctly, they still didn't interview. So I initially created, this is how the training company actually got developed. I said, as part of our search process, we'll train you on how to interview. So I just went in and trained them. And then we got search assignments. And I said, but we're going to use our process to find a job this way and interview this way and use our scorecard. So then people said, why don't you just train us and we don't want to use you for recruiting. So that's actually how the process broke off. But what I frequently did, I'm thinking, you know, a lot of the searches we did were vice presidents or general managers, and they were dealing with board members and uh, presidents. They didn't have to interview at all. So I just said, okay, I'll interview We'll interview collectively. It was a pain in the neck. I mean, if you you know Southern California and everybody knows the history, it is hard to go 30 miles in Southern California. It could take two hours. So I had a lot of clients downtown or in that area, and I lived in Southern 30, 40 miles away. It's hard to get there. So if I had an interview at three o'clock, I'd have to drive to the interview at three o'clock, sit there, interview in a panel together. But I learned a lot. Then the hiring manager said, "Oh, I know, and I an interview." So. I would coach the hiring manager real time on how to interview. And that's how I started realizing, ah, because uh, I didn't want a good candidate getting blown away for bad reasons, which happens. We make judgments about first impressions. We make judgments about height, school, where they went to, didn't like the person's shoes, all this stupid stuff. But I say, use the interview to collect the evidence to make a decision. Don't make the decision during the interview. And now all of a sudden, at the end of that time, I said, okay, why do we like this candidate or not like the candidate? And we focus on evidence. But so that's where I really fall, fell in love with panel interviews as well. A well-controlled panel interview where someone is somebody who knows how to interview is leading the interview and the other people are just asking clarifying questions is a great way to do it. A bad panel interview is where everyone asks random questions and interrupts everybody else. And it's just a, it's anarchy and it's a waste of time. So I don't know if that was an answer to your question, but it was still a good point. Or maybe not. No, that was the answer to, to my question. I asked about the um, how you engage in those in training the um, the hiring managers in their in their interview process. Yeah, generally we like to train a company. If we're dealing with the accounting team, we say let's train all the accounting people because they'll be interviewing. So that's and that's how we really developed the performance based interviewing methodology. We went out and trained people on it, and that's a lot of what the book is about too. So we develop a lot of tools on how to interview and how to measure quality of hire pre before you hire the person. So I have your book, The Essential uh, Guide to Hiring and Being Hired. Well, we should get the title right though. <laughs> so you don't obviously don't have the book <laughs> with you. It's probably behind that fake Hollywood Boulevard uh, sign you have there. <laughs> I'm gonna edit that out. What if it's the don't essential guide it. to good hiring part. and being hired. The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired. I'm going to hold on. I'll, I'll show you the books. Hold on. Okay, you bet. Where'd you go? Well, Stacy's gone, but here's the book she was referring to. Well, that's not the book. This is the book. God, is that the book? No, this is the book. I'm seeing it backwards. That's why. I don't see it uh, on my... That's interesting. You know, I don't see this the right way. Why is that? Because this is backwards it, to me. Is it, cor it correct fixed. to you? Yeah, uh, no, I can see it correctly. This one, when I yeah, look at it, it's backwards too. Yeah, okay, so here's the <laughs> two. Perfect. High with your head, 
was the first book in 1997, three editions. This came out in 2013, and now I'm going with Lila to do the fifth edition or the fourth edition of this, and we're going to make a total multimedia project. We're in negotiations with that, but it's at least a year before, well, it'll be six, three months before we get the deal signed, and we'll get it done. So a year from now, there'll be a new edition of Hire With Your Head. And the subtitle is really critical. And I've lost the subtitle, I'm bringing it back. A rational way to make a gut decision. Oh. Reality is, hiring is still a guesswork. But you have to have enough evidence to say, okay, I feel reasonably sure that this person is going to fit with the job, fit with the company, fit with the hiring manager, and will be successful. So that's a real critical. It's, it's still not perfect. We're, I think we're better than most people, but we're not perfect. But it's a good book. If you can find this book, I think it, the original price was 20 bucks. I think it's up to 30 bucks now on eBay. I mean, and it's worth every penny if you can find a historical version of it. Sorry for that uh, plug. No, that's great. Is How does it differ from this one, uh, The Essential Guide to Hiring and Getting Hired? Well, that's actually probably, I would say that's, I couldn't use the title, Hire With Your Head, for that because it wasn't published by Wiley. Wiley wanted a fourth edition. Uh, they didn't want to make it a big deal, so I just, we published it with another publishing company. Can't even think of the name of it. But published it and actually turned out to be very, very sold actually more of that version than we did of this version. But so Wiley's now interested and wants to come up with a new edition of this. But I want to combine it with uh, their multimedia learning platforms. I like how it has the maze feature through it because it is kind of true because you're you're doing a process and you're doing something you're like oh and you and in recruiting you often have to start over and over again but that's what you're trying to help people with so they're yeah, not see, constantly you're the first person in the world who's ever figured out that our cover designer actually was so excited when he came up with that and he said look at this maze this is what hiring's all about. i read the book and this is the cover but nobody has ever figured, and I actually forgot, so I, I'll tell the designer if I can find him um, that he did a nice job. At least one person out of 43,000 figured it out. Stacy Broadwell cracked the code <laughs> on the design of your book. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's, it's an excellent, I think I've said this before. I, I got trained in recruiting 10 years ago and went on to start my own agency, did my own thing, and then took some time off to have a family. And as I was coming back in, I was looking for some training and I knew what I was doing before, but you know, I wanted a refresher. And I went through your course and I listened to your seminars. You actually came to my conference and I listened to your seminar, but um, you set a perfect, you set a great barometer for where recruitment should and needs to be. And I think that's why everybody enjoys your talks. And I think that's why they're so informational because it's sound process delivered in an easy way to understand. You give these cards. Do you have one by chance? Actually, I have. I'm actually presenting to uh, 150 sales managers tomorrow. This is our magic card. Actually, this is an old version of the magic, but it looks pretty similar. This. This card, when used properly, will eliminate 100% of all hiring mistakes. This card, you have to go to a lie, and I will give them out if they go to your LAX tech. I will give everybody a, car, a magic card. In fact, I've also made this a digital version, and we'll give it that one out too. So, but you have to go to your, I'm sure you'll publicize that event somewhere in this meeting uh, or this podcast. So if they go to the event in LA, what date is it? June, July, something or other, 17th? <laughs> 
July 18th, you're our keynote speaker, and I hope you've marked it on your calendar. <laughs> because I think I'm actually in Charlotte that day, but I'll try to make it. <laughs> no, I think I'm actually in Charlotte a week later to talk to okay. people who manufacture door locks, so, um, which are going to be 100 a lot of the 400 other people manufacture door locks, you know, the doors that automatically open and close with your key and phone. Oh, that's uh -huh. a huge company that makes those. I'm actually talking to them a week after your event. So I'm actually in Charlotte, but I moved that. I actually made sure that they didn't put it on your date because your date is very critical to me. Thank you. What are you going to speaking? What are you speaking to them about? Same thing. I'm speaking to you how to hire great people every time and how to make hiring a magical process. It starts by defining the work that needs to be done, making sure that candidates don't opt out for stupid reasons, and hiring managers assess people on their ability to do the work and their fit with the job. They do that properly, they will hire great people every time. That's what the topic is. I don't care if it's an engineer, an accountant, a sales rep, a, someone in a call center, or someone selling the yellow pages, or someone at In-N-Out Burger, because we help them hire when they're growing from 50 stores to 200 stores, how to hire college, high school kids to work behind the counter. You'll be speaking at LAX Tech Recruit in July. Do you want to tell us about what you'll be speaking on? Well, yes. Uh, given that this is the first time you've asked me to speak at LAX Tech Connect in July, sometimes what? July 18th, it's 17th. It's LAX Tech Recruit. <laughs> LAX Tech Recruit. It doesn't matter. It's the same place. Say it again. Just like my wife. Say it again. I mean, it's, it's LAX Tech Recruit. I'll be speaking there. Likely, I'll be speaking about... Uh, in fact, can I share my screen? I want to show you what I'm going to be speaking about. Yeah, this is what I'm going to be speaking about. Share. So this is what I'm going to be talking about, Stacy. When I wrote the first book, which you just talked about, I asked the, uh, our cartoonist to draw a cartoon that defined the current state of affairs of hiring. This was in 1998. So this picture was 1998. You see it, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I I'm love gonna this be, picture. And this was birth of the internet. Job boards were coming on board. Companies were bringing recruiters on site, uh, and applicant tracking systems were just being developed. And they said, "We're going to win the war for talent." So I asked people, "Have we won the war?" I mean, yes, some of these things have changed, but when by and large, little has changed. So the thing I'm going to ask the sales managers tomorrow these people in uh, Charlotte the week after I see you who are 400 different companies manufacturing hardware products. And I'm gonna ask the folks at LAX Tech Recruit, is that the correct name? Yes. On July 18th, is that the correct date? Yes. I'm gonna ask them this question. Do you still hire people who are underperform? Do you still hire people who don't fit? Do you still hire people who seem to have all the skills but are not motivated? You still, do you ever hire people who far exceed expectations? Because if you still do these things, hiring is still hard. And what I'm also going to make the statement is you're not hiring the best people. What we're going to do at LAX Tech Recruit is show you how to hire the best people using the magic scorecard and the magic of performance-based hiring. That's what I'm going to be talking about. Now, I don't care what they're looking for, software people, engineers, marketing people, sales reps, or executives, or people working in a call center. Understanding the job is the first step. The second step is finding people who want to do that work and are competent at it. The third step is making sure that hiring managers understand how to interview candidates properly. And if they do that, they will be hiring great talent on a consistent basis. 
I believe that's what I'm going to be talking about at LAX Tech Recruit in Playa del Rey area on July 18th, hosted by Stacy, the remarkable Stacy Broadwell. Thank you so much. I love that um, that picture that you posted. You posted it on LinkedIn a couple weeks ago, and I liked it. And I took a screenshot of it because it's so interesting how, quite honestly, not much has changed. And uh, hiring managers and companies still have the same challenges in hiring professionals. And so I was going to ask you, because I was thinking about this a lot, um, there's all this talk about AI and automation and do you think that has helped the process? Here's the problem. I think in some way it's helped, but in some way it's going to hurt because AI is just going to try to make the transactional process more efficient. So when you think about it, the reason that it doesn't work is where people take jobs they don't know. You post boring job descriptions that no one wants, uh, and you've made it easy for people to change jobs. That's the reason why everybody, that's why you have so much turnover is people have made it easy to change jobs. So people take jobs for what they get on the start date, the title, the company, the compensation, uh, and they discover that they don't want to do that work. So we've just exploded. We made it 20 years ago. It was hard to change jobs or 25 years ago. You actually had to send a resume to somebody off a job posting you had to look for. So the superficial job change wasn't there. You've actually changed jobs for prop for the right reasons. Hey, on a long-term basis, I shouldn't be in this job and you worked hard to get a new one. We've made that, we've taken that barrier to entry. Now AI is trying to solve a problem that shouldn't have been created to begin with. And AI will solve that problem. So if you're working a transactional model, you'll be AI'd out. I'm working with some AI vendors to say it's a multi-level decision. Number one, skills don't define success. Performance defines success. Number two, do you get a hiring manager to talk to you? Uh, well, they have to see the candidate as both competent to do the work and a high potential person. Now you, AI hasn't solved that problem yet. Now you have to have go after candidates who see the jobs as a career move, not a transactional move. That AI has not solved that problem yet. But if you add those three levels, AI could do the job, but they're still at phase one, which is hey, let's figure out what mix of skills uh, breed success. And they they they'll spend people will spend a lot of money. It won't work. And ten years from now, that chart will still be the same. And I can put AI out there unless you go into a high touch performance-based, and it doesn't have to be performance-based hiring. People can call it whatever you want, but you got to understand the job. you got to get people to talk about careers. you got to get hiring managers to do it right. You do those things, you will hire good people. But posting a boring job and having AI filter thousands of candidates who aren't qualified out is a lot of money spent, and giving a great candidate experience to people you're not going to hire, to me, that doesn't make logical sense, but people still spend money doing it. I, I want to ask your advice on something. I am speaking at uh, LMU in a couple weeks uh, for a conference, a, a multiple day conference called uh, SQL Saturday. And it's, uh, it's for software engineers and, and data professionals. And I'm doing a class on uh, developing your resume, negotiating salary and, and interview process. And I, the, when you talk about performance-based hiring, what you have on the job description in your resume is your performance, your success stories. But if you don't have those, what advice would you give to a senior in college? Okay, actually, seniors in college do have that. Uh, I just looked at, we're helping a company hire 100 salespeople. And we started looking at a couple of resumes. 
So one resume was a person who had three or four years experience in sales. He didn't do very much. I, this other woman was right out of college. She worked as an intern for Pepsi. She worked on a campus ambassador for Red Bull. She was leading a project for a couple of companies. I mean, she was remarkable. I mean, I just look at the person, the resume, I said, 30 seconds, this is a hot candidate. I mean, she, was, she did, she had good grades, good societies. She had two internships. She was asked, she was also given another offer to work uh, for Pepsi full-time. And was working in distribution. I don't know what she was doing there, but you don't get those kind of intern jobs and get promoted doing that kind of work unless you were good. So you just, so that's what I say is it doesn't matter what you have. If you're in college, you do stuff that indicates that you're a good person and you got recognized for being a good person. I looked at a resume and instantly said, interview the candidate. Looked at the guy's resume, I said, why did you even, and they, uh, they actually, I said, and they, the recruiters actually thought the people were exactly the same. So we had a three minute conversation. I looked at one resume and the other resume, I actually talked to the guy because uh, the sales team didn't want to interview the candidate and they were all frustrated. Why are my candidates being interviewed? I know the candidate's good guy, but average good guy. This woman has the potential to be remarkable. And it was very clear. People become remarkable in college. Uh, even if they work part-time, full-time to pay for college, that's pretty remarkable too. So you just look for those attributes and say, what is a person doing that would indicate that they're successful? Now, I guess I can't give you another slide to show how candidates, because I have another card. This is an article I'm gonna write in two weeks, so I might wanna preview it here. Do you, you, wanna, you have a few minutes? Yeah, absolutely, okay, so I've got time. Okay, so here's a piece of magic. So. This is what I tell recruiters, but I also give this the side for hiring man or for candidates as well. I call this the best type indicator. I know people are familiar with DISC and predictive index, uh -huh. uh, but it's not, but I'm not happy with those because I think they're superficial. So here's the way I do it. And I say, hey, if you make like to make fast decisions, put yourself on the right of the chart. If you like to make, if you tend to be more cautious and like data to make a decision, put yourself on the left side of the chart. So people can quickly put themselves on left or right. Where would you put yourself on this one, Stacy? left or right? I think I would be on the left. I like to uh, take time and get all the information. Okay, so you're on the left, that's fine. So now, I, oops, see Daisy. So now I have people who, if you're on the top half of the grid, you tend to be results focused and less sensitive to the needs of people. If you're on the bottom, you tend to be people focused and less sensitive to the needs of the project or results. Uh, people who are really on the top are totally insensitive to people. People on the bottom are totally, who care? They just want to have a good time. So where would you put yourself on the, the vertical axis, the top or the bottom? Definitely these days on the bottom. When I was younger, closer to the top. Now that I have kids on the bottom. <laughs> okay, well, so now I know your personality. If you're results focused and fast, you're the boss. Mm -hmm. You're dominant, assertive, and confident. And if you're in a pain, and if you really get under pressure, become overbearing. If you're, which is pretty much what I think, well, if you're on the bottom, you tend to be an engager. People focused and fast, you tend to be persuasive, convincing, and affable. And under pressure, you get real pushy. If you're slow, more cautious, and people focused, you tend to be a supporter. Collaborative, understanding, and diplomatic. But under pressure, you can become kind of bureaucratic and use bureaucracy to slow decisions down. If you're Slow and results focused, you tend to be technical. Analytical, probing, deliberative, and under pressure, you tend to be controlling. Uh, those are the four attributes. Now, the problem is that 
this this is free. I get this is the best test. This is pretty cool. Do you think that's pretty reflective of based on people you know, Stacy, and uh, situations you've been in? I I don't I don't think that it is reflective of me actually. <laughs> well, wait. You said so. You're telling you said you're slower and team focused. You don't believe you're diplomatic, collaborative, and understanding. Um. I, I feel when it comes down to infrastructure in my company and I'm looking at like, say for instance, an ATS or different plugins, I really evaluate the process and look across multiple different vendors. So you tend to be analytical too. So you tend to be both sides, right? The point of this is what you just explained. When you take the disk of predictive index, you don't have a choice. You pick an either or. It's what you prefer to do, not whether you're competent to do it. So that's number one. Number two, I tell interviewers, if you want to increase your competency in interviewing, is become your opposite, the exact opposite style. So if you're the boss, slow down, understand how people make decisions and how they deal with people. If you're the engager, understand how people are, analyze the situation, how people get results. If you're a supporter, focus on results and how people uh, deal with pressure and handle pressure and get achieve results. And if you're technical, focus on how people deal and persuade others. By crossing over, you'll actually increase your objectivity in the interview. What we've seen, however, is the best people, which I think in your case, are really good at all of those and they're, they're situational. They kind of move to the center when they're dealing with different situations. It's not an either or, it's I can be, and it has nothing to do with competency. It's just what you prefer to do. You could, you might be a good, you might be a coach, meaning you can adapt to the circumstances, but are your decisions the right one? Are your team skills the right one? So it has less to do with uh, competency and more to do with preferences and the communication style. And unfortunately, people get screened out during the interview because of this. So I tell people uh, when you're interviewing a candidate, understand how their style changes over time yeah. and understand how people deal with pressure because if they move to the extremes outside from the center, there's a people you don't want to deal with. Now, for a candidate, what I tell candidates is, if you're, you got to figure out what your style is, you also have to feel what the style of the interviewer is. So you quickly understand, hey, if you're dealing with a boss, you've got to give this person short, quick answers, focusing on results. If you're dealing with an engager, focus on how you, you have to convince this person, you have to understand how, how this person makes decisions to convince the person. If you're dealing with a supporter, you have to slow down, uh, you have to understand how that person made decisions, you have to focus on your team skills. And if you're analytical, you have to demonstrate your analytical skills to that person. So as a candidate, and I think you should use something like this as a candidate, this is how you can ensure you're making the best impression with the candidates, with the hiring managers interviews you're dealing with. So whether you're an interviewer, it's a way to improve your interviewing skills. If you're a candidate, it's a way to ensure that you're measured properly based on the person by understanding how these people make decisions. So it's not a good predictor of performance, but it's a great way to communicate uh, to the style you need to communicate. That's great. That's I think that's the best personality test of all time. That is and a good. Um, that's a good test for new grads, I think, to take our seniors as they're going into the interview process. Thank you. Hey, Tech Recruit fans, just wanted to take a quick moment to remind you to follow us on Twitter at TechRecruit underscore. You can also find our page on Facebook at Tech Recruit and our group, the Tech Recruit group, where all of our speakers and attendees are hanging out and talking about 
all the topics and things that they learned at the Tech Recruit Conference. And we'll look forward to seeing you at LAX Tech Recruit July 18th in Playa Vista, Silicon Beach, and Midwest Tech Recruit in Chicago, September 18th. See you there. Happy to do it. Well, thank you. We are... One final question. One final question. I know you have a lot of stuff here. You can edit all the good stuff out, but give me one final question. Make it as tough as you can. Oh, I was going to ask you, in your time of speaking at conferences and doing all these presentations, has there been one person who's really impressed you or kind of set a standard for you? You mean someone who I've listened to as a speaker? Yeah, maybe or somebody who's impressed you or you look up to. Because I think a lot of people look up to you. I just want to make sure when you say going to all these conferences, are you people who ask me questions or people who are speaking at these conferences? Either way, speaking, asking questions. I'm just wondering if there's somebody who's impressed you that maybe okay. you think. Yes, there is someone who's impressed me. His name is Peter Thiel, T-H-I-E-L-E. I went to an Unleashed conference, which is an eight-car tech conference a month and a half ago in Vegas. He wrote a book called, well, it's about disruption. I'm not totally positive of the book, but he talks about focusing on the day after tomorrow. Uh, and he said, when you think about it, most people spend most of their time cleaning up the problems they created yesterday. They're supposed to work on today's work, and they kind of plan for tomorrow's work. But the future is really working on the day after tomorrow. What's going to happen the day after tomorrow? And when you look at that little chart I did, this one here, that's whatever it was, that this chart of the slide. Oops. You guess I can't share anymore. It doesn't matter. When you look at that chart that I presented showing what happened 20 years ago, people are just trying to be more efficient. They're just most people are trying to work on tomorrow, but they realize that they haven't solved the problem from yesterday. Don't just try to be more efficient doing the wrong stuff. Try to be efficient doing something different, or maybe efficiency isn't it. And that's what I, so when I met this, I didn't meet him, I, he was a speaker at this uh, presentation. He gave a, the keynote presentation. I was very, I bought the book and I'm reading the book. It's not called the day after, it's called about disruption. And the guy is really remarkable. I even told him, I went up to him and said, this is the best speech I've ever had. So he really did impress me on understanding of focusing on the future, that's strategy. But most people in HR and most people in hiring just focusing on, I got to be more efficient. I got to be cost costly, and that that to me is the fundamental error. You got to understand: Are we solving the right problem? If you have turnover, underperformance, bad interviews, candidates taking the money for the wrong reasons, don't keep on doing that faster. Rethink the problem and kind of design it for what do I really want to do to raise the talent bar, and that will change how you hire for today. And that to me is where people should focus on, and I think Peter Thiel demonstrates it properly. It doesn't matter what the business challenge is, but he's certainly focused on thinking about the future, and it's a different future. It's not a faster present, and I think too many recruiters are focused on a faster present, and AI is just trying to make it faster without people. So, like, to me, uh, my, that chart that I've shown from 20 years ago, it's not going to be any different 10 years from now. Sadly, I don't think it will be. Probably not. Uh, Lou Adler, thank you so much for being on the Tech Recruit podcast. We will see you in at LAX Tech Recruit in July, and we'll see you in Chicago at Midwest Tech Recruit in September. I'm looking forward to both events, and stay stay cool. Be good, Stacey. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.